Hello and welcome to episode 192 of SMARTS, which as you know stands for Saving Mesmerized Ava Repairs Troubled Synchrony. Indeed. Mm. I am your host, Julia Gulia of Internet Fame Dash Podcaster, and with me, as always, is Trevor, aka Rudiger Q Podcaster. <laughs> the crowds are going wild. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Are you ready for some news? Yes, ready. Okay, so a little bit of news this week. So um, we have the first plot details on the Star Trek uh, animated series that you recall us talking about on the show before. Of course, most mm-hmm. of the Star Treks, remember there was a while there when it seemed like every week on the show a new Star Trek series was being announced as being in development. And we talked about how one of them, at least, is not going to be on CBS All Access. It's going to be a kid-focused show, which was going to be on Nickelodeon. Oh, yeah. Which okay. I guess... CBS, Viacom, Paramount owns. I guess it's like, you know. Kind of makes sense. I guess it must be. Otherwise, I don't know why it would be on there. Right. Um, But yeah, now we have the first details on it. So we don't know if there's going to be any existing characters in it. We don't know when it's going to be set, i.e., you know, TOS era, Next Gen era, Far Future, anything like that. But we do know that it will... And this sounds like a very, like, Star Wars Resistance or Star Wars Rebels style tone to Mm -hmm. me like kind of more like resistance so i think probably we're looking at something in terms of the maturity level of season one star wars resistance is it's going to focus on a bunch of uh teenagers who find an abandoned starfleet ship Mm -hmm. and take it and go have space adventures huh that's awesome so it's it doesn't seem like it's going to kind of have like an like a Star Wars resistancy kind of vibe, just in terms of like maybe yeah, you know, like light lighthearted mm-hmm. adventures and escapades da, kind da, of thing. Da, da. Um, Until they see the serious side of things. I mean, there's never been there's never been a it, it's completely uncharted territory because there's never been. I mean, there's been one Star Trek animated series before, although this is going to be CG apparently. Um, but there's never been um, a kid targeted Star Trek series before. I mean, I'm sure there's been kid targeted comics and young readers mm-hmm. novels and mm-hmm. stuff like that, but there's never been on, on screen. Like in legitimized I mean, there's been, media. Yeah, there's been Star Trek kid stuff, a uh, Star Wars kid stuff going all the way back to like the droids and Ewoks cartoons of the 80s. And, yeah, and or the even Ewok the Christmas advent- special. The Ewok Adventures live action. Well, I don't know, the amount of cocaine the, oh, the yeah. actors were clearly on in that movie maybe makes it skew a little but older. Still, um, that's hilarious. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so this will be interesting to see. I mean, it's obviously it's not aimed at people like us, but much like we watch Star Wars Resistance because we like Star Wars, I'm sure we'll watch. I mean, we're not going to like not watch something that says Star Trek just because it's aimed at a younger audience. Right. And, you know, if it's good, it's good. And and the the people that are working on it are people that have worked on, I think, on the Lego movies and stuff like that. So it's got a good pedigree behind it. Mm-hmm. it I'm, I'm very curious what the art style is going to be. Like, I could, I don't know, like, if it, if it has sort of a generic mid-budget looking look to it like Star Wars Rebels did, then, I mean, I'll watch it, but I'm going to be like, this doesn't really feel like it's doing anything new. But if it has a really interesting style like, Star Wars Resistance does, which mm-hmm. is not a new thing, that sort of cel-shaded look, but it makes it stand out from, from the other stuff. So I'd be interested to see what kind of style they go with it. This might not even be the first Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, I keep, keep doing that, I've become everything I hate. Um, the first Star Trek animation that we might see, though, because we know that they've got a couple more short tracks in the pipeline, and those are going to be animated also. Oh, 
Interesting, so, yeah. you know what? Maybe they would even use, much like they use the short tracks between seasons one and two to set up stuff for season two of Discovery, i.e. Kaminar, sure. Tilly's friend, yep. etc. Maybe they're going to use one of these short tracks to set up the show as sort of a backdoor pilot for this new show, even though it's not going to be on CBS All Access, so maybe they wouldn't do it that way. But maybe they would tra- test out the style, like test out the art direction, mm-hmm. and maybe some of the production crew and pipeline on this before moving them over to that. Maybe. Because behind the scenes, it's all the same. I mean, it's not all the same team, but it's like the same... Studio generating the show, even though it's going on a different network, you know. So, cool. It'll be interesting to see what they do. So, I mean, that sounds like it's a younger skewing show, but Mm -hmm. much like you've got Ezra was the focus for season one of Star Wars Rebels, for example, but then the so sort of expanded, got more mature as the audience aged with him. Hopefully, they'll do something similar here. Yeah, you know, where they're sort of they're all they think it's all fun and games at first, and then they stumble into. I mean, who knows when it's set, but then they stumble into like the Klingon War or something, and they've got to grow up or something Mm -hmm. like that. We'll see what they do. Um, and the other bit of news this week is a little bit of comic book news. So um, you, I'm not sure, have you ever, I don't, I don't think since you've been reading DC, there's been one of these, but there's a tradition obviously going all the way back to world's finest of having a Batman Superman team up monthly sure. series. And for they, the, the world's finest name sort of lay fallow for a long time. And then they brought it back. They brought back the concept at least with the series that was just called Batman Superman, Batman mm-hmm. slash Superman. Um, and I think they did like a Superman slash Batman series at one point too. But um, in the the 2000s, that was more what it was known by. And DC is bringing that back. There's, so there's going to be a new monthly series written by Joshua Williamson, who writes The Flash right now and has done a bunch of other stuff. Um, what's, what's the Justice League working on? That? Oh, yeah. He did the first year or so of Justice League Odyssey also, the first five or six issues of that. Issues of that. Um, and drawn by David... Um, was was David uh, Marquez, Mm -hmm. who did a lot of work with uh, Bendis on Ultimate Spider-Man at Marvel. This will be his first DC work. He's got a really nice sort of fluid animated stuff, kind of like Jamal Campbell on on, Mm -hmm. on, uh, Naomi, Mm -hmm. just sort of like almost like a really interesting animation cell put to page kind of look to it in a way. Um, So they're going to be doing a new Batman Superman series, which is going to be starting later this year. And it's interesting the setup for it. So the... the, um, Batman Who Laughs miniseries right now that Scott Snyder and Jock are doing has been extended by one issue. So now it's going to be seven issues instead of six. And that is to accommodate one of the issues essentially being like sort of a backdoor pilot for this Batman Superman series. And apparently what it's as, as weird as that sounds, and apparently what it's going to do is set up the idea that as part of his always thinking five steps ahead thing, the Batman who laughs, even if he's taken down by Batman at the end of this miniseries, has in some way infected six people from across the DC universe. Mm-hmm. And they're slowly, whether they realize it or not, and so in some cases it might be like a Manchurian candidate thing where they don't quite realize it's happening, are slowly sort of turning evil. And these are going to be characters that we, the readers, are familiar with already. Like who knows who it could be, right? Like some Supergirl and Kyle Rayner and whoever, you know, like mm-hmm. characters you might not expect. And so this is going to be a big overarching story in the DC universe going forward is that there are six characters, presumably important heroes, although it could be, you know, Alfred or whoever, it could be supporting mm-hmm. characters too, who are slowly turning evil. And they could do all sorts of cool stuff with that where, you know, maybe we, the reader, discover one of them, but the other characters don't know it yet. Mm-hmm. And so it's like we're, we're on the edge of our seats waiting for them to figure out what we already know. Mm-hmm. And this new Batman Superman series will be sort of the spine of that story. And mm-hmm. we'll feature the two of them sort of trying to figure out who it is and almost like a a horror slash detective story with Batman and Superman with this as the sort of the meta plot. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. It'll be spinning out of an issue of the Batman Who Laughs, which will come out in the next month or two. And then the series will launch in a few months and that will be the the premise. Wow. So 
It's 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 an interesting premise, one I don't think I've really seen before, of kind of having like sleeper agents throughout the DC universe mm-hmm. that the big guys have to have to sort of figure out who it, who it is. Wow. Um, actually, now that I think of it, wasn't didn't they even hint at something like that? Didn't um, there was a there was an, a thing recently? Oh, it was yeah, it was. Um, what was the name of the crossover? The recent crossover between Batman and Flash. I can't remember what it was. The one where they fought Gotham Girl. I can't remember what the name. The Price. That was it. The Price was the name of the. Okay. But you remember the storyline. I right? remember it was just the like storyline. I just don't remember the name of it. Well, there, but there, at the very end, you know, Batman and Flash. Basically, their friendship was like, okay, oh, right, we're yeah. over as friends. And but then it flashed forward, and you saw Batman sitting at the back computer, looking at. Like, you know, the thing where a guy sits at a, in a superhero comic, you're sitting at a computer and now on the big screen is headshots of a bunch of other heroes, you know, mm-hmm. that classic shot. And Superman was there and he's like, we've got to figure out who mm-hmm. who who it is. And it's too bad, <laughs> you know, you're not friends with The Flash, the second greatest detective in the DC universe anymore, yeah. right? Yeah. Now that I think of it, this was setting that up. And of course, Joshua Williamson was writing mm-hmm. that crossover too. So mm-hmm. he was setting that up months ago when that crossover was Funny. happening. So, yeah, so we're going to get to see that come to a head, and this will be the series where we really get to explore that idea. But the plot point could very easily show up in a bunch, in where you least expect it, mm-hmm. in some other book, too, where we all of a sudden discover that a character we've been reading about is one of these sleeper agents, and right. then we have to wait to see how long before Batman and Superman discovered in the main series, you know? Well, yeah. So we've got to keep an eye out and um, keep a lookout for that. But that'll be that's the premise for this new series. That's fun. And it's starting uh, in a few months. They just announced it today. Wow. That's exciting. And that's it for our news. Wow. Great bit of news. So what was your comic of the week? So this week I picked Heroes in Crisis number eight. Um, Usually I am all all for discussing all the comics um, and in detail, in spoilery detail, because I assume that rather a small audience is actually in tune with this one, but um, with with the comics and in line with what we're doing and, and doesn't mind the spoilers so much but in this case i'm not going to talk about all the details because this is one of the flagship um not only is one is is this one of the flagship titles of dc right now and everybody's excited about it like borderline game of thrones excited about this um it is also the last last issue i picked it for my comic one more more after this there's one more after this well it's the penultimate issue (laughs) and i'm probably going to pick next uh the next issue also but here we find out what really happened at Sanctuary and it's so mind-blowing and gripping and in some cases even controversial. Um, Oh, you can bet it's been controversial. Yeah, I know. Yeah, on the internet, which, gosh, calm down. (laughs) Internet, come on now. Well, there's certain characters that without, so, I mean, if if it were me, I would probably have you know, I'd, I'd be it. willing to spoil it, but it's just too. It feels too big. It feels wrong. Well, to spoil let's just say it that we find it hasn't even been. A we find out the specifics of what happened at the sanctuary yes. killings and who was responsible and why and what happened. And a lot of it has to do with with certain characters that because there are certain characters in the. I mean, well, don't 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 lead down the road. No, the point I'm just is gonna, that I'm just going to say there's certain characters in the DC universe that because of the way wink, they've, wink. they've been treated over the past ten years or so, fans are very protective of. Yeah. Because they might not have gotten as much spotlight as other characters, or they might not have been seen. You know, they might not have been seen, or they might have been mistreated by writers, or or written out of continuity, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, we got to pretend they don't exist or whatever. And mm-hmm. this obviously this is DC Comics. There's a lot of characters that have been written out of continuity, so sure. I'm being very vague here purposefully. Um, but then when you when one of those characters starts to get a little bit of the spotlight again, but then a writer comes along and dares to tarnish the reputation in yeah, some way, yeah. then the fans can get very... Very, very up in arms. You know, like, 
I, and I've seen this happen many, many times. Like when Hal Jordan came back, the Kyle Rayner fans, of which I was one, mm-hmm. were like, listen, guys, nothing damn well better happen to Kyle Rayner, right? And then mm. they almost went, they almost overcorrected where they made it, oh, let's make him Ion, let's make him right. the White Lantern. Let's, they almost made him too Godlike. good, too good, just yeah. so the fans were like, okay, don't worry. Like Kyle's still the most powerful of it. It's like, I don't need that. I just need him to be well-written and to like be seen frequently, you sure. know, like it's yeah. not to vanish into the, into the ether. So, so fans can be protective of certain characters. And so you can see how an issue like this might be. I don't want to, I don't want to dredge on too much of the topic, but the reason I picked this for my comic of the week was because the art was amazing. It continues to be amazing. And the story was knock it out of the park, knock my socks off. Astounding. It was so flipping great. That if you have not read Heroes in Crisis, I really encourage you to dig it up. The even, sum total of eight times three, issue. eight times three. <laughs> if you were to buy the the back issues, eight times three is twenty four bucks. Worth it. Do it. Or just you wait. Won't or just it. wait for the trade and get the whole story for like fifteen bucks. Yeah, whatever. there you go. But but as someone, but I don't want it. That's another reason I don't want to spoil it because it's so. As, as someone as someone who is a big fan of this character, like literally one of my probably one of my top five. I mean, there's certain point people are kind don't of guessing. Even, what don't about. even be quiet. No. Well, but as someone no. who's a big <laughs> who's a big fan of this character mm-hmm. um i i did not have a problem with it mm-hmm. because and and part of it is like yeah i can see how the character comes back from this how, how someone else could come along this is not like hal jordan becomes parallax and destroys the green lantern Corps and murders everybody they even right. managed to write him out of that one right yeah so i mean this is nothing compared to that but the the way in which everything goes down is is understandable enough and and really goes to the heart of like we've talked about how the series has felt like maybe it was a little slow pace, but it felt like it maybe it, could have mm-hmm. been four or five issues instead of nine, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And it was even supposed to be shorter, and then they extended it. Which, you know, if that's what if this is what Tom King felt he needed to tell the story his way, I'm not going to argue with his artistic vision. But part of me wonders if sometimes this, the the you know the higher up smelled that they had a hit on their hands, and like, can we get a yeah. few more, you know, two hundred squeeze a little two hundred k seller issue <laughs> sellers out of this, yeah. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is really this issue is really the whole series in the microcosm. Like instead of bouncing back and forth between Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, and Harley Quinn and Batgirl, and Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, and and vignettes about you know Narc and and uh, Hot Spot and Blue Jay and Poison Ivy, this issue is basically just cover to cover about this one character and what they've been going through. And when you look at what this character has been going through all the way back to the beginning of Rebirth and even before that, you mm-hmm. know, what they lost because of Rebirth and the things that came before that. And, and it is written in such a way. And of course, Tom King, I, I, I mention this every now and then. I don't know if you retain the information, but Tom King used to, was a, for years, was a CIA operative. Mm-hmm. So when he writes about the kind of trauma that someone can sustain when they're, you know, yep. engaged in a world of violence for a living and the things that it can cost you. And in this case, it's not so much acts of violence that cost him what he had. It was the vagaries of continuity, basically, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but when, when everything you have just goes away and you feel like... Try, I, I don't want to do it. I don't do it in injustice by talking about it. But, like, you're messed up and people are telling you that everybody is just as messed up as you are. But you can't believe that's possibly true because everybody else looks like they're somehow managing to cope and you know that you're not. Mm-hmm. You start to feel like there's something... There's either something wrong with everybody else or there's something wrong with you that's worse than what's wrong with them. And so even though people are telling, you know, like Mm -hmm. you can't, you don't quite, you can't connect those two points. Like people are telling you that it's okay. Everybody goes through this. Everybody here is like this, especially with the way Sanctuary is is 
is set up where you can't see anybody else that's there. So people are, you know, the robots and the computer that are running the place are telling you that there's a lot of other people that they're going through what you're going through, but you go, it's not real to you because mm-hmm. you can't see it. Mm-hmm. All you see is the VR world that they put you in to help you heal and the computers that you're interacting with on a daily basis. So it's this sort of sterile, um, inhumane environment that the people that go there are almost subjected to that, you know, like it's easy to see how that could make certain people's problems worse. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it, it made th- it certainly made things worse for at least Booster and Harley. And it's a wonder that they didn't go go off the deep end, you know? Right. But it's even not even that this particular character, you know, lost it and, and committed the murders on purpose too. It's more complicated than that, which is obviously what mitigates a lot of the, the thing. And, you know, people read this issue and they start to go off on on Tom King yeah. on Twitter and send his family death threats and stuff. I mean, first of all, there's no helping those people. But e- but even the people that that are more moderate about it, they get angry when they read the clickbait headlines on right. on CBR like, you know, major DC hero murders everybody yeah, and they're yeah. like, "What? I love that character." But when you actually read the issue, yeah, yeah. It's it's almost it wasn't so much that this the character intended to do any harm really. It was just that for one moment, oh, they kind don't, of, don't, you know, don't, 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 so, don't, oh, anyway, this so. is the kind of stuff I don't want to talk about. No. <laughs> anyway, we didn't spoil too, too much, but it's still, it's still really awesome. And, and yes, like he said, it's understandable and it was really good. It was gripping. It was so gripping that that's why I had to choose it for my comic of the week. What was your comic of the week? So I picked Action Comics number 1010. I'm actually really surprised you didn't pick Heroes and Crisis. I was going to, I was going to, it was down to the two of them, but I suspected you might pick Heroes and Crisis, so I, I went with Action Comics. Okay. I'm just really, I, we talked about it two weeks ago, I think it was my comic of the week also, but I'm really enjoying the sort of Leviathan rising yeah, spy thriller great. in the mm-hmm. DC universe. I mean, there's a great sequence at the beginning where um, we think it's Kate Spencer who comes to talk to Director Bones, but then he immediately realizes that it's not really Kate Spencer. Yeah. And then we see like it's actually Talia. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to figure out how much he knows. And that's a great sort of tense interrogation sequence where nothing is quite as it seems. And then we get all the, the, the sort of a little bit of a lighter sequence between Jimmy Olsen and Amanda Waller in the Fortress of Solitude. Yeah. Where she's like, kids, stop taking my picture. And he's like, how do I know that you're not really the one responsible yeah. for all this? And you just trick Superman in order to get access to the Fortress of Solitude. Mm-hmm. And she's like, huh, that's actually pretty smart. She's like, why didn't I think of that earlier? Like, I could have gotten access to the Fortress of Solitude if I just <laughs> tricked everybody into thinking there was a major coup in the intelligence world going on. It's really funny. Um, and then, of course, you've got Lois and Clark going undercover as Chaz and his wife. Um, Fiance. Or whatever. And, yeah. And, um, and trying to get back into spiral, and you see, um, did she ever? Did she even get her code name? What's her she name? She did, but she was, but because I think the last time he used this code name, they probably weren't married or whatever. So she knows about the Chaz thing, but she's not. Her cover isn't isn't as an as agent. Deep, her cover yeah. is just like his plus one, basically. Um, and they 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 meet up with uh, with Tiger, the head of Spiral, since Tom King's the end of Tom King's Grayson series. Um, but then there's. So there's, you know, there's a lot going on where he doesn't trust them and they're not sure if they can trust him. And then actually, I quite like what Bendis did here because he wove in a lot of the continuity too, where Tiger is like, did you know that Spiral actually started as a way of, of uh, spying on and, and if it came to it, taking down superheroes? <laughs> and Superman sounded like he, he already knew that. And, you know, people have been reading all the way back to the Grayson series where Spiral was introduced knew that that was the case and he's like oh did you know that it was actually started that Spiral and Leviathan were kind of created by the same guy at the same time as sort of a way of of um I'm trying to think of another example. There's there's other like examples. Checks and balances. Well, there's other examples. Not so much checks and balances, but as a way of sort of creating this. Kind of like how... Did you ever read uh, George Orwell's 1984? Yeah, I did. You know, we, we've always been at war with East, East, Asia, East Asia kind of thing. Yeah. And you kind of get the sense that 
that even though everybody in a culture is being told to hate everybody in this other culture, the people in the other culture are being told the same thing. And in fact, the governments might actually be conspiring to just keep keep that going, keep everything going because they're the ones making all the money and living high off of, what, yes. of what's going on. So the guy that created Spiral and Dr. Otto Netz, I think was his name, and he was actually the father of, I'm remembering my Morris and Batman run correctly, he was the father of Kathy Kane, the original Golden Age Batwoman. And he, but he was like this evil spy master, and he created Spiral and Leviathan both to pit them against each other so that Spiral would have this bogeyman to fight. Uh-huh. Kind of like, you know what a better example is? is, is um, <laughs> funny, of all things, the Star Wars prequels, where Emperor Palpatine was... You, you, had, you had Chancellor Palpatine, the, the saintly leader yeah. of the Republic, but secretly you also had Darth, Darth Sidious, who is propping up the Separatists mm-hmm. as a way of st- stoking the fires of war so that he, as Chancellor, could get more and more emergency powers during the war, right? Mm-hmm. It was much the same thing here. Mm-hmm. He created Leviathan so that Spiral, which he was the, the public-facing head of, as much as anybody's the public-facing head of a secret spy organization, but mm-hmm. the legitimate recognized head of, could have a target to get more funding, get more resources, so he could enact his evil, you know... Mm-hmm. Side projects. E- evil plans, basically, yeah. you know? Evil side projects. And then Talia got involved in the whole thing in Grant Morrison's Batman run, and she ended up sort of co-opting it Yep. and, and everything. So I, I was nice to see all that in there because that hasn't been referenced in years, and it's just Spiral is just now one of the many spy organizations in the DC universe. Sure. We're seeing in this just like there's Checkmate, there's the yep. DEO, there's all these other things, there's Argus. Um, and then Leviathan has been sort of off, off the... Out of the spotlight for a while, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's mostly just been going on over in the Silencer book where they've been going through their own thing. And I'm curious how that's going to tie... Let's call that a reorg. Well, I'm curious how that's going to tie into this because the Silencer series is ending and I think that they're kind of probably going to start to set up some of the stuff we're seeing here. Part of me wonders if it's too obvious that Talia is the one in charge of it because obviously we're seeing over in Silencer she's back in charge of Leviathan. But if Bendis is propping up Leviathan as like this huge new threat across the DC universe, part of me wonders if he's going to want to have like a shock reveal of who's really pulling the strings. And maybe right. Talia is just a puppet herself or something. And then mm-hmm. we might maybe start to see some of that alluded to in Silencer as it winds down. But I really enjoy it. And the art, of course, by Steve Epting, like we said last time, is really really beautiful and atmospheric and does a lot with, you know, the facial expressions and the acting and mm-hmm. a lot of use of, of black too. Like mm-hmm. it's not, everything is very, like you would expect in like a spy movie, you yeah, know, yeah. It's, there's not, there's a lot of dimly lit rooms and nighttime scenes and everything like that, you know, Yep. it's, it's really good stuff. Yeah. Yep. I'm enjoying it as well. So should we move on to our activity slash quiz? Yes. Ready. Okay. So this week I thought I would have us rank in, in honor of Gotham having its final episode this week, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about. I thought we would rank the Commissioner Gordons. <laughs> cool. So I've got six actors who played Commissioner Gordon in either live action or animation. And awesome. so we can rank them. So these actors are uh, Pat Hingle, who played him in all four of the Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher Batman movies. The one starring Michael Keaton, yep. uh, Val Kilmer, and uh, George Clooney. Uh, Gary Oldman, of course, from the Christopher Nolan movies. Oh, yeah. Ben McKenzie from Gotham. J.K. Simmons from um, Justice League. Why are you right, voice. Like because I was like, I don't no, J.K. Him. Simmons played him in live action oh, in the right, Justice right, League. Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob Hastings, of course, from Batman the Animated Series, New Batman Adventures, Superman, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. many spin-off so on, animated yeah. movies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and Brian Cranston, who voiced him in the oh, Batman yeah. Year One animated movie, in which, ironically, Ben McKenzie played Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Um, and did a great job at that too. So those are the six. 
Huh. Um, okay. I pick uh, Hastings. You're always, it seems like you always pick the, uh, the, the animated. animated series. Well, be it for sentimental reasons or anything. Everybody else in my esteem is living up to those that character. It's hard to stack up when you've, like, when you play the character dozens of times over the course of many years. You really, and, and you're comparing it to actors who've only played them in a handful of movies, for example. It's hard to really. I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's an unfair choice. I'm just saying that you really have to knock it out of the park in one or two movies. Right. To, to compare to a, the huge body of work that, say, Bob Hastings accumulated over the course of, like, 10 years of voicing that character in animation. Yeah, but my second place kind of debunks that because it's J.K. Simmons. Really? Yep. J.K. Simmons over, over Gary Oldman, for example? Yeah. Hmm. Just in that one... Yep. You really didn't get... I mean, your choice is your choice, but, as, but just in, like, his five minutes of screen time in that movie, you didn't really get a lot of... You didn't see a but lot of shades to his character. Hey, man, this example. is my ranking. You step off my ranking. <laughs> he definitely felt like Commissioner Gordon. That's I just what felt I'm like saying. over the course of the three movies that say Gary Oldman played him, and you saw you saw him at his highs, you saw him at his lows, you saw his rise as commissioner, you saw him at his low points, you saw him struggle and I everything. I just don't think it was. I don't know. I didn't feel Commissioner Gordon. When I thought. I, saw I thought that. that I mean, Oldman. to me. Okay, so you as keep, you keep as ranking, but to me, to me, Gary Oldman is is the best live action Commissioner Gordon so far. Nice. I mean, J.K. Simmons could could do better if he get hopefully 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 they don't throw the J.K. Simmons out with the Affleck, you know, just like just because Ben Affleck isn't going to be in Matt Reeves' Batman movie anymore. Hopefully they don't throw out Jeremy Irons and J.K. Simmons and right. everybody else that they've you know yeah. the other great characters that they've actors that they've cast in those roles so far for right. for a total reboot of some kind. Yeah. So hopefully we get to see them continue because I, I think that J.K. Simmons could easily surpass. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everybody, Gary Oldman for me is just that those Nolan movies were so good, and he was so good in them. And he just, and the way that the the you know people say this about Gary Oldman all the time is that he just sort of vanishes into a role. Like you look at Gary Oldman in a bunch of different roles, and it takes you a second to even recognize that it's Gary Oldman, yeah. especially these days, where you know he just, as he's getting older, and you know they can put makeup on or whatever, and he just vanishes into it. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, didn't he play? What was it? He played like Churchill or something recently, and it was. You didn't. You have to like I squint to even know. recognize that it was him. Anyway, but yeah. So I mean, he he was so good in in that, especially in. Um, I mean, and everybody was good in Dark Knight, but I think that Dark Knight was probably the the best he did in that. So you Dark you, Knight was good, but you put Bob Hastings and then J.K. Simmons yep. and then then who? Then I have to look at your list because I can't remember who else. Um, I don't remember Pat Hingle. You didn't grow up. Time. You didn't grow up watching those uh, Michael Keaton Batman movies over and over like I did. Over and over, no. Um, no. He was. So he had a, me, he had a pretty be... small role in them, like relative to what you think Commissioner Gordon, like relative to Gary Oldman in the Christopher Nolan movies, for example. Pat Hingle was barely in those movies. He had a, was... probably the largest role in the first one, but only maybe like ten minutes. Yeah, they of didn't total really characterize time. him. No, he other was not, than just a yeah. dude with a mustache, and that that was it. So that's why I didn't even remember. <laughs> didn't even remember very well um no for me number three is going to be gary oldman um and then number four is going to be ben mckenzie and then brian cranston and then pat hingle that's how i'm going to rank it because hmm. do you want me to discuss or no, i mean I'm, that's my ranking no i feel like it's, it's kind of self-evident i mean it, it's that's what i felt with a lot of these rankings i feel like some people get end up getting the short end of the stick because like with ben mckenzie where the character he was playing was only 
barely recognizable as right. what we would think of as Commissioner Gordon a lot of the time. So I think we went through some of this with what was the other the other role we were ranking, and we're like, oh, it was Lex Luthor. Mm-hmm. Where we're like, yep. this guy did an awesome job, but it barely felt like Lex Luthor, so you don't end up ranking very high, you know? Yeah. And I felt like exactly. Ben McKenzie mm-hmm. did a really good role, a really good job on all hundred episodes of that show. Yeah. But it was so different than any, even like the year one conception of Commissioner Gordon. Right. Um, in so many ways that that it it doesn't it, it me, feels like a different totally different thing. And it's what I've said before is that for me it's a the way I think about a character is definitely how, what an actor brings to it, but that's only part of it. It's how it's written and how the story is structured around that persona to make it to breathe the soul of the original character into it. Like in this case, Batman comics have existed forever, and so Commissioner Gordon, the persona is very very old at this point and it has some sort of a feeling to it you know well, and he was there in the very first issue it was there in detective comics see, I, the I very first sure. page the very first page of the very first batman story was commissioner gordon entertaining his young wealthy socialite friend bruce wayne in his office like i guess police commissioners do and just telling him about the details of a case that he's working on which As doesn't really does. seem very very kosher well, I didn't it's like that. oh bruce let me tell you since we're just sitting here smoking cigars let me tell you about this interesting case i'm working on and of course yeah, that, that, batman that. shows up and does his thing you know and it's only on the last page of that issue that we the reader only discover for the first time that Bruce Wayne is Batman like that was actually a last page reveal for the story although if you're paying any attention you probably would have figured it out but literally the very first page Commissioner Gordon might have even gotten the first line of dialogue in a Batman story now that I think of it he was there on page one just chatting with his friend Bruce Wayne that's really cool which is something that you you lose in a lot of versions and they actually kind of kept it for Gotham uh, which is that in the original versions, like Commissioner Gordon and Bruce Wayne were friends, like outside of, yeah, it doesn't really seem everything. that they would operate in the same social circles really very much at all, especially like the modern conception of Commissioner Gordon is like a more blue collar, right. salt of the earth the kind of guy. Man, yeah. But originally he was like, you know, is the commissioner of police, right? Like he's yeah. going to the, the ball, the costume balls and, and palling around with Bruce Wayne. And well, know. I mean, a real police commissioner is actually more of a political figure. Yes. But so, we're but we're so I, I would I would buy. But that we're there. so used to we're we're so used to like the downtrodden the guy who crawled yeah. his way up through the corrupt department, you know. Yeah. yeah. I, I, and which really started with Frank Miller's Batman Year One, yeah. as as the guy that came in as like this transfer cop from Chicago and had to work his way up by rooting out corruption and being like just just tough as nails and being the last guy standing. And every every time these corrupt cops tried to jump him after work, yeah. you know. Yeah. But yeah. Um. So I think that I'd put. I mean. Sent, sent for sent, sentimental reasons, I think I have to put uh, Bob Hastings at the top two. But it would be it would be tight between him and Gary Oldman. Then I'd have to put Gary Oldman. Then probably Ben McKenzie. Um, just because it, it feels too early for J.K. Simmons to really get a sense of how well he'd play all the different shades of the well, character. Well, this is interesting to me because you literally said that J.K. Simmons, you could see how J.K. Simmons could eventually beat. Gary the, Oldman, the one, in your estimation. Because the one shade of the character he got to play in that movie, he played very well. But That's I need, what I'm I need more. Like Ben McKenzie, even though his his character is a very different kind of Commissioner Gordon, at least we got to see him as as a All as the like full, the crusader. We got to see him as the crusader for justice. We got to see him as the cop. We got to see him as the husband. We got to see him as the father. We got to see him as a guy down in his luck, and then a guy that was ascended and play, sort of trying to play the mm-hmm. political game sometimes, and then the guy that's actually good in a fight, and like all the different sides to Commissioner the Gordon, the moral character, the, yeah. fr- the friend and the parental figure to Bruce Wayne, all the one who up, abandoned it and came right, back. All yeah, these, yeah. all these aspects. Mm-hmm. Whereas J.K. Simmons just got to kind of be the gruff, quippy guy on the on the rooftop of the police headquarters, turning on the bat signal one time and talking to Batman. You yeah, know? but like, I dug it. He well, he was great in that scene but I need I need more from him like I'm sure that he's going to be great at all the different aspects but I can't give him credit for something he hasn't done yet you know 
So I'd, I'd have to put him lower than that. And then I think um, Brian Cranston, because Brian Cranston was so good in Batman Year One. Like there were so many great performances yeah. in that movie. But it's really his movie. Batman Year One is really a commissioner. Well, he's not even commissioner at the time. It's it's a Jim Gordon story, even more than it is a Bruce Wayne story. And he was great in that. And then Pat Hingle was great in the in the Tim Burton Batman movies. And then it was kind of ridiculous what they because they just sort of trotted him out as this pompous, ridiculous figure in the, in the Joel Schumacher movies. Like, there was a lot of ridiculousness in the Joel Schumacher Batman, Batman movies, and he was kind of, he kind of got the worst of it. He, he and um, Michael Goff, who played Alfred, were like the only, were the only two actors who were in yeah. all four of those. Yeah. And at least Michael Goff got to do some, got some interesting stuff to do. He, he got to be kind of like the, the wise father figure to Chris O'Donnell in Batman Forever, and then he got to play like the dying... Mm-hmm. The Dying Man and Batman and Robin. Well, yeah, but those scenes between him and, yeah. and George Clooney were actually kind of a, those. They those were, are the only good nice. parts of that movie. Yeah. Like you know him playing yeah. the father who wants you know. So so he was great, but Pat Hingle got less and less to do as time went on. And mm-hmm. so even though he was great in that first movie, as sort of like the frumpy, um, hard bitten commissioner type, mm-hmm. um, he really didn't get much to do in the later movies. And so it's kind of like with J.K. Simmons, where he got to play the one note they gave him well, but they didn't really give him much else to do after that. So yeah. he kind of yeah. ended up at the bottom. Yep. yep, those That's are my good ones. Okay, let's talk about shows. Yeah, so we have the series finale of Gotham, and then we have new episodes of Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, Arrow, and Doom Patrol. Nice. So I feel like the biggest the biggest thing this week is Gotham. It's yeah. the final episode of Gotham. Final episode. So how so do you feel about this? Uh, I liked it. It was a good epilogue. Um, I like that the characters kind of felt like who they were supposed to be, and... And, know, and, yet, and yet didn't up. really feel and yet didn't really feel like they did a complete drastic shift from who they've been all along you exactly. know like even though 10 years it, it's actually kind of it actually seems to me that after 10 years some of these characters would be even more different than who they were before than right. they were here yeah. you know yeah you watch them for five years and then you miss 10 years you kind of figure that riddler would be even even crazier or mm-hmm. less cra- like you think that he would have gone one way or the other right he'd right. be more like the serious methodical Riddler that we know from other stuff or he'd have gone even more insane you yep. know or you mm-hmm. think the Commissioner Gordon would have been like more li- dedicated light, to lighter service. now that he, lighter now that he's on top of the world or would be even more weighed down because he's been doing this grueling job for 10 years and right. they just kind of seemed like the same guy just a little grayer and with a mustache in one side yeah. you know yeah. so I liked it I, I didn't love it it felt like it to me it just felt like um, they had a series of check boxes they wanted to hit yeah. Like we've got to see adult Selena, we got to see Batman, we got to, we got to bring the Joker back. I mean, uh, actually, you know, Cameron Monaghan is the Joker so was probably good. the best part of the episode. Yeah, it was so You finally good. got to play like the actual the iconic actual Joker. Joker yeah. Um Yeah, wow. and it felt like oh, we got to have Commissioner Gordon with the mustache in one scene. We've got to establish that like little Barbara mm-hmm. in it, you know, is there and we've got to see the new Wayne Tower being built and we got we got a hint of Batman and the Joker's got to be there. And you know yep. all the other things. Oh, like, like Penguin's fat and has the monocle now, yep. and, and he's palling around with the Riddler, and like it just felt like a series of check. I didn't feel any for for. I'm, I'm normally a sucker for for endings. Like even even a even a decent ending to a to a good series can really get me because you're like, yeah. oh, you're never going to see these characters again, right. or these actors and these roles, and everything is being wrapped up. And it's like it's it's it can be a very emotionally charged story. Mm-hmm. And to me, I just felt like yeah, that was good. Like I didn't. I didn't feel anything. Like, did you, did you feel like a great swell of of triumph when Batman appeared at the end? Like, this is what we've no. been building to. For, it's just like, oh, there he is. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? That's how it like felt, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it, was, it was competently executed, but I felt like it didn't, 
It didn't hit the nose. It didn't really have a lot of soul to it. It just felt like they were checking a lot of boxes. I mean, that's the same thing you could say about a lot of these episodes. I I like Gotham for what it was, and it, it definitely played outside. It colored outside the lines, as it were. A lot of the and stuff I liked most was when they were doing their own thing. Like some of the stories that stories they, they introduced here are versions of the characters they introduced, even if they were mm-hmm. kind of different. We're like, oh, I've never seen that in a Batman story before. That's right. interesting. Yeah. Like, the Jerome, for me, I took the issue Jerome, with a bunch of those. But well, yeah, but when you think back at it, like Jeremiah the Jerome Jeremiah Twins, thing yeah. was, was really, like there's yeah, never been a version of Joker like that before. Right. And that was some of the, like Cameron Monaghan has been such a great element of the show. Yeah. Um, like this version of James Gordon, like we just talked about, is, you know, is different in a lot of ways. But I think you you would agree that, his, you know, Ben McKenzie's performance and like that character anchoring the show is one of the good strengths of the show, right? right? Having a, having a, a younger Bullock who is sort of a peer to Gordon instead right. of like one of his underlings yep. is sort of was sort of a smart move, giving them sort of a buddy cop way to do it, which was a version of Bullock we'd never seen before. Like the grizzled older cop taking Gordon under his wing right. and being influenced in turn by him to be better. Right. You know, is, yeah, is a yeah, cool, yeah. like some of the things that they did or like having seen like the penguins rise from like the scrawny nobody who just holds Fish Mooney's umbrella, umbrella yeah. to the king of gotham and then his fall to like this ridiculous waddling character like yeah i mean but you like you see the shape of what they were trying to do like there's mm-hmm. a lot of interesting ideas in there and there were even interesting ideas in this finale too but it just felt like they're like oh let's see can contrast it kind of felt like the final episode of smallville in some ways but i think the final episode of smallville was better because they it was the culmination of a whole season's worth of storylines even yep. though they did oh we got to have clark in the suit and we got to see him become superman and they got to have the john williams music in there and they got to do these certain lois and clark moments and we got to explain what happened to everybody they checked all those boxes but they still managed to tell their own story mm-hmm. what was the story of this episode mm-hmm. there was there were some bombs i guess right like yeah. that was a story it was that J- jeremiah had some bombs that didn't really end up you know what I mean? Yeah. There was no, there was no story here. There was no real emotional heart to it. It was just like it definitely a series of scenes like where we caught up a with everybody reason to bring people yeah. together. Yeah. It was just it. It didn't feel cooked. Yeah. It's it's. But yeah, I did like seeing everybody together and sort of just I don't know if this is the worst that happens in Gotham, then we're in okay shape. I think it would have <laughs> been better if they'd had more with this future thing if they'd done a few episodes like this or even if the whole final season like like say fringe for example had been yeah. set in the future then they could have really gotten into how these people yes. are different after 10 years and they could have told their own unique story in that setting they could have had bruce wayne come back after 10 years and just really live it up just be publicly drunk well, then and disorderly you're, then you're, and then stuff you're, like that then, then you're, you're just, just describing batman begins but that that's point. what i'm saying exactly that's what i'm saying is that you could set it up you could have like a, what you just suggested the last episode or the last five episodes or whatever be uh, of the season and the series be you know kind of a really solid setup for where batman's character goes well, they're also kind of hamstrung by the logistics of the show and that they I cast know. such a young actor in the bruce wayne role True. and he's not believably Bruce Wayne. Uh, Batman's, Batman. Batman's size yeah. by now. Whereas they, they lucked out in numerous ways with Tom Welling because he was a big guy yeah. and the show lasted for 10 years. Yeah. So that when when he became Superman at the end, he had, you'd seen him from go from like 14 to 25 or something. Right. And he was the right age to become Superman. And he looked like Superman. Yeah. yeah. So you, you bought it in a way that I feel like you can, you watch this episode and you really feel them riding around the fact that they can't show Bruce, 10 yeah. years older. Right. Because he wouldn't, you'd either cast someone different like they did with Selena, but they don't mm-hmm. want to do that with one of the quote stars of the show, I suppose. Right. Um, so you end up using his voice and you artificially pitch it down, but you don't really see him. Mm-hmm. It, it felt like it felt like they were writing their way around the, mm-hmm. logistic, the, restriction. the restrictions that they themselves had imposed. And it's also a difference be- because 
in the five years since uh, it's five years is not 10 years and Did for I, was them, i saying 10 years no 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 you were you were comparing no no wait it was you, 10. You said how many years had passed was it 10, 10 years? years no okay stop five years of the show right is not 10 years from the end of that show to whatever it doesn't matter um the epilogue was 10 years distance right, you're talking years, about okay. your you were talking about how tom welling went from 14 to 25 and we were able to sort of see that journey and you know at the and then just you know accept it because physically he was matured in the course of the show and we the audience don't even realize how much that impacts the story. But here, this show was only lasting for five years. He didn't have enough time to grow into the show. If it had lasted another five years, we might have seen yeah. him legit. But we've in talked the before, costume. but I, I don't. They cast. They didn't. When they cast Tom Welling, I don't think they knew they were going to go ten years. But they were casting someone, casting someone who clearly had like that body type. Like he was a beefy looking guy. When they cast D- David Masseuse, I think they were look. They were looking for someone who was like this. A this young kid, kid right? To play and he has this Wayne. wiry build. Because that's it, the story I mean, they were telling. Yes. And I think anybody can put on muscle, but I feel like Tom Welling is was built to, was built to inevitably you know play to look like Superman when he was twenty five. Well, David Mazuz just does not have the genetic. When he was playing a high school kid, he was twenty four at the time he got that role, and he was thirty four at the conclusion. Well, of the something show. like that, yeah. But I mean, just but just so you know, <laughs> I know. But I, I don't think even ten years from now, David David Mazuz is going to naturally have that sort of huge build. Like I don't, I just. Like anybody can put on muscle, but, but who I cares? I mean, who who really cares about that? So that's a different version of Batman. Batman doesn't have to be it doesn't a bruiser. Have any muscles? No, De- Batman doesn't have to be a bruiser. In fact, classically, he's shorter and and wirier because mm, he's a ninja slightly, for Christ's sake. Slightly, but I mean, you you know how it goes. Like all these yeah, all these characters are drawn to have huge muscles. It's just sort of part of the superhero look. Kind of, you know, like but Ben Affleck was huge in Batman. Except for Flash. Superman Flash thing. is incredibly wiry, but anyway. But even he, a lot of times, is drawn. But you know, you're right. But I mean, like Batman should probably be a little wirier than Superman, but he should be bulk than David Masseuse and I don't think he's well, I don't let me think put it to you without way. years of training he's ever gonna without Bruce Wayne level training basically you know yeah well I mean not everybody can be Christian Bale and go from the mechanic to Batman Begins after yes. six you know put, literally put on like 100 pounds of muscle or whatever ridiculous number he put on what did he do yeah he actually had to trim dead you know about this like he put on too much <laughs> and someone said to him, you know, you're playing Batman, not Fat Man. Because he, he literally put on too much bulk, bulk, right? Wow. Like it was all muscle, but yeah. it was too, he was too bulky. Wow. He actually had to lose some of the weight. He overshot it. And that was coming from those role in the mechanic where he was playing, which I'd never seen, yeah. but he was playing like some emaciated guy. He right? was, yeah. He, had to, he literally put on like almost 100 pounds in like six that's months. Crazy. It's some ridiculous. That's no, I mean, so... that's probably more, but I mean, some ridiculous number. So, I mean, not everybody, but and that's Christian Bale. I mean, so we'll see him as Dick Cheney in, in Vice now, right? Like he's one of those guys that just... Does whatever he has to do. Body. He's willing to abuse his body for yeah. a role. You know, you're yeah. not going to ask some 12 year old kid to do that for your Batman TV mm-hmm. show. So, there yeah. are some actors that are willing to do that for 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 the art, and I both applaud them. and And I shake my head. I'm like, no. Well, and it wouldn't have been fair. <laughs> for them to, die it wouldn't early. have been fair for them to ask this kid to put on like 50 no. pounds of muscle for a TV show that he's only going to do for one episode. For one episode. You know? of TV so show. no, that's not yeah. what I'm suggesting. No, I know that's either. not what you're suggesting. I'm just saying that, like logistically, like we've been saying, there's but sort I told of you, your part of that logistical problem is the extra five years because he's still a teenager yeah and he could absolutely i mean he has the acting chops and i honestly disagree with you because uh in terms of like oh he doesn't have the jaw to be batman i don't think i agree because we've seen a lot of different versions of batman and not all of them had a super super strong yeah jaw he could line. be like you the know, michael could, keaton type i suppose is what i'm saying the sort like, of it more doesn't matter. wiry it's all nebishy type guy well i mean he wasn't Nebishy. I totally bought Michael Bruce Keaton Wayne as is that. Kind of, is kind of a little bit of a. He was still intimidating when he threw a, a punch in the yeah, thing. Yeah, I know. 
whatever. But that's because they had the well, they whatever had the millions awesome... of dollars they spent on that suit, you know, like that made him look like some awesome guy. Like but on it's a what TV I'm budget. telling you. Yeah. But is what I'm telling you. Like with but, a little creativity, you yeah. could dress anybody well, up. Well, with a little creativity and millions of dollars in your costuming budget, you're never yeah, going to have enough money on on the Gotham TV show to create a Batman suit that looks halfway as good as well, what they can do in the movie. you know their so. costume. Hold on, because... Their costume budget had to extend to all the other people too. It, no, they didn't well, spend millions of, of dollars just yeah. on the Batman. I know, but thing. I mean, and don't compare a film budget to a, a, a TV budget because the TV budget can do quite a lot with a little bit less. So yeah, but they have to pick their battles. Like the, I know, the, the, but the, if they chose the to Green put Arrow their... suit, the Flash suit, they look great for what they are on those shows. But they specifically chose a certain style for those costumes that are a little bit more real world. Yeah, you know, using yeah. real world materials. Compare that to like Ezra Miller's suit as the Flash in the Justice League movie where it, it it's sort of weird looking. It's like a carapace that's like sewn together with wires and stuff. Like, I mean, it's sort of a weird look, but also like very expensive and you could not, you'd, it'd probably take the guy like friggin' four hours to get into that. You couldn't do that on a TV series schedule, let yeah. alone a TV series budget. So there's different, you're aiming for different goals, you know? And I feel like one of the things about the CW shows, for example, is that they, one of the things that makes their costumes so great is mm-hmm. that they, they they don't overreach you know they they know that like, okay we've got to work with this on a on a weekly tv series timetable and budget what are the materials that are that we can work with what's the sort of the look that we should go for without without sort of making it seem too much you know cuz if you go too much then you end up with like the adam suit which you barely even see anymore on legends of tomorrow right. because you can tell it's probably a bear to get in, Brandon and Ralph in of- and out of that thing right and if you break it, it probably takes you a month to repair it because it's. They, they, right. I remember what they. I remember reading. They spent recast, like they spent yeah. like a million dollars on that suit or something, and they've got one of them or something like. Cause it's like we're not gonna. We can't make any more of these, you know. So right. they don't use it very much. Right. So, anyway, um, but yeah, I feel like I feel like. So, do you want to at all talk about like your overall thoughts on Gotham now that the series is over? I mean, okay, so the series is over, and I, I continue my love hate relationship with this show because it I did never, manipulate. I never hated it. No, no, no. I, I know I'm that's just, just an expression. It's a, but. Yeah, it's a glib expression on my part. I was um, at worst indifferent to it. If I really hated it, I wouldn't have watched it. Let me put it to you this way: like, I no, just I'm just. You've just got a lot to learn this. about being a critic on the internet, honey. If you're, if you're, I'm not a critic. <laughs> I'm, I share my opinions on being occasion. A critic on I'm the internet critic. is all I'm about watching things you hate and then talking about it on yeah, podcasts. Yeah, I know. That's why they're so angry all the time. Anyway, um, <laughs> okay, so. To quickly summarize, I was. It took me a while to get on board, like really on board with what they were doing, because I I, I signed up to watch a cool concept and kind of look in a peek, peek, peek through a window th- into a timeline that I hadn't seen before. But this n- into into lives of characters that I thought I knew. But this sort of changed it on me because it changed the characters that I thought I knew. And I didn't like it at first. And um, But now I, I understood what they were going for. And I thought it was pretty awesome the way that they were touring with the sandbox. And like I said, coloring outside the lines. Um, I like the show. And there are tons of problems with it. I would have written some different bits of dialogue here and there. Some different plot points here and there. Um, but, but overall, I really I enjoyed the ride. And... Like I said, I think it would have been interesting to see what they would have done in another five years worth of show. But um, the last episode felt really nice as an epilogue, and it did set firmly um, on the ground who was going to go where from that point. Um, I don't know. It was just fun. So 
in summary, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I think, I I mean, we talked many times about how we feel like one of the issues was just the show, just its tone seemed to be all over the place. And yeah. so there were elements that I really liked of its sort of um, true crime police procedural elements. Like yeah. when they when they would lean into that, I would really like it sometimes. And when and other times when they went completely, biz- did completely bizarre stuff yeah. and leaned into the the absurdity of it. Yeah. I, I would sometimes really like that, but they would they would they would they tr- often be in the same episode know, and it would clash. Right, you know? they didn't know what they wanted. And I feel like points. and I feel like here, even in this final episode, you see it on display. Like the the version of the Riddler and Penguin in this episode were yep. almost more like the versions from the Batman sixty six show. Sort of like the yeah, bumbling, were, like they? all the all the criminals were pals, <laughs> and they would have bumbling adventures together, and Batman would tie them up. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> That's true. Oh, I didn't even think of it. And yes. and yet, then you've got like Joker dangling Barbara over a pit of acid and stabbing uh, Barbara Keene in the bar and everything. And that felt almost like the, like the darker true crime stuff they would do sometimes. Yeah. That was, um, that was the killing joke Joker right there. He even threatened her eyes. Do you remember that? Yeah. So I'm, so it just, you know, even at the end it felt like, and like I say, some of the, some of my favorite aspects of the show were the things that they did Creepy. differently. Because I want to see, I don't want to see the same story over and over again. I want to see different versions. Mm-hmm. So I, sometimes I would like the things that they changed, but um, but the, sometimes then sometimes they would go too far with the changes, and so that was like I don't know. It felt like they it felt like they didn't quite know exactly what they wanted to do with the show and so it tried it just sort of took like the shotgun approach like a, sh- a, a bunch of different tones stories that go off in a bunch of different directions and sometimes don't don't really lead anywhere and so the characters just sort of like go back to the way you know like how yeah. many times did penguin we've talked about this before but how many times did penguin rise to prominence and then have a fall from grace like it happened at least three or four times yeah. right yeah um so it, it there was no there were no like clean through lines for very many characters. I mean, I guess you could say that that Gordon kind of had the clearest through line in terms of his rise to prominence, but then even his arc had stops and starts. Like where he remember that for five minutes where he was like a disgrace and a bounty hunter for yeah, five minutes before yeah. he got his job back. So even then, it just seemed like they were throwing a bunch of ideas out. Can I say one last thing about it? Sure. Harley was a disappointment, but her death scene was great. But that wasn't even supposed to be Harley. I mean, he even referred to his Echo again at the end. He's like, "Oh, maybe somebody else will come along to replace you." Right? Like, I think that was mm-hmm. there for the people that knew that she wasn't the real, Har- the real Harley Quinn. Oh, I see. Okay. I think that's why that was there. Um, yeah, she did have a decent death scene. But yeah, I think that I think that there are elements from this. Like, I think Ben McKenzie um, is going to be recognized as like a like an iconic mm-hmm. version of Jim Gordon. Yeah. I think that for a lot of people, um, this was their first exposure to Harvey Bullock if you didn't grow up watching the cartoons because yeah. he wasn't in any of the movies he wasn't in other live action stuff and he had some great Lo- episodes Don't in the animated played, series played a great version of him yeah. here he was one of the consistently strongest most um, sort of empathetic mm-hmm. presences on the show like yeah. you all you all he his performance always elicited like a lot of sympathy from the audience because yeah. he's got this real like hangdog expression to him a lot of the time <laughs> um, some of the versions of the villains like I know that um I know that Penguin and Riddler here are kind of are very different than their comic versions a lot of the time, but I think that the actors played them with such gusto yes. that, that you can't help but enjoy their performances. And I think that Corey Michael Smith was at times genuinely a very chilling version of the Riddler, like especially in the early parts of his origin yeah. where we're seeing him go off the deep end. Yeah. Um, I think that they, I think that um, that um, Sean Pertwee mm-hmm. is, was a fantastic Alfred, probably one of the oh, best yeah. best Alfreds. In live action, yep. I mean, there's been a lot of. Uh, maybe we should rank the Alfreds next time, but that, that's a tough <laughs> race, you know, because yeah. you've got Michael Caine, you've got J.K. and um, Jeremy Irons, you've mm-hmm. got Sean Pertwee now, Michael Goff, and the and the 
80s and 90s Jr. from Zimbalist Jr. Like Alfred has always played. I don't think oh, there's man. been a bad Alfred. Even the guy in the original Batman 66 series was was really was a really good Alfred yeah, for he what was. he was being given to play. Yeah. Um, I think so. I think a lot of uh, great performances, really, really good That'd versions of some characters, but it just felt like it didn't really coalesce into things. And, and I think that here, I think that for for me, a lot of like I say, a lot of the stuff here that that was most interesting was when they did their own thing, in contrast to the other long-running DC origin series, which was Smallville, I think that Smallville got stronger and stronger the more it leaned into the mythology. Yep. The more it became more of a Superman show, yeah. the better it got. <laughs> but yeah. here, it felt like the more they tried to just do standard Batman stuff, it would sort of fall flat a lot of times. Uh, a lot of times, but I got to say that they wrapped up Catwoman really nicely. Um, Catwoman, the character, yeah. I think that was my favorite scene when she was robbing the diamond. In the very well, beginning, that, and that's the that was good, but that was like the, a standard Catwoman can, scene that you've seen. I do want to give the actress versions. a shout out. You told me a really cool story, and if you could repeat it for well, it was everybody. just that I, I might get her name wrong. Carmen Bicondova, I think, is, is her last name. I, I don't think I've ever had to say it out loud. Um, she voluntarily stepped aside for this final episode because she didn't feel like it would do the story or the finale or the character service. service. To have her play Selena in this final episode because she didn't think she could believably play her ten years older. Mm-hmm. So when they were talking to her about about the episode, she said, "You know, I don't think it should be me. I think you should get somebody else who's older and kind of looks like me, but looks like mm-hmm. she could conceivably be in her late twenties, right? Um, and have her be in it, even though it meant she wouldn't get to be in this final episode of the show that she basically grew up doing. And so right. I think that was a really so classy, selfless, yeah. classy thing to do as an actress. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I I feel like so. I mean that that would be my that would be my thing is that I felt like they did a lot of n- new and interesting things. Um, they did a lot to shake it up, but I felt like they they needed to either they needed to pick a side. They needed to either lean into the mythology, yeah, or they needed to do their complete completely their own different thing. And it felt like they were kind of vacillating between the two, which sort of gave the show a schizophrenic tone. Like <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do a really close. We're, we're going to like do a Rachel Ghoul who looks like he stepped right out of the comics, mm-hmm. right? With with uh, Alexander Siddig's version. Mm-hmm. But then we're going to kill him twice and have him lead into like this weird no man's land story, which is happening mm-hmm. before Bruce Wayne is even Batman. It's like, yeah. why Like why would you choose to do that? Like it's just, just weird decisions, you know? Yeah. Like they, they start from a good, they got great actor, great performance, you know, whatever. And then they sort of zig when it feels like they should have zagged. Whereas with Smallville for all of its errors, it felt like they sort of, eventually triangulated on like a good um, a good a good foundation for like a young superman show and then the past couple of seasons of that were like a, were, were a lot of fun as a dc comics fan and there were great stuff early on in smallville too but it was a very different show because it's like a teen drama sure. um i feel like if they'd done like a teen drama with with a young bruce wayne which is kind of the conception like i don't know if you know this but when they the that um before smallville like the, those producers were sort of pitched, like, why don't you guys do a, a young Bruce Wayne series with him, like traveling the globe? But then I think Batman Begins was kind of starting to be a thing at that point, and so they're like, no, we want to save that story for the movie, so you guys do a Superman story instead, basically. But if they wanted to do a young Bruce Wayne series about him discovering who he is, like basically Smallville for Bruce Wayne, which the series was not, it was trying to be a lot more of an ensemble thing. If they wanted to do that, that would have been one way to go. Or if they wanted to do a a, a proto Gotham before Batman and not have Bruce Wayne in there, have it take place while he's traveling the world mm-hmm. and he's in his 20s or something, yeah. but we don't see him. Yeah. And the final episode is about him coming home and you only have the Bruce Wayne character in the final episode or something. Yeah. You could do that, but instead it was like you had a cast where you've got 
you know, is is it a show about the cops or is it a show about like these the kid like these these kids yeah. like Bruce Wayne and Selena and Ivy? And then, like, then there was that whole thing where he actually Bruce Wayne did go away somewhere to some Tibetan esque locale, but it was tied back to Gotham in some way and yeah. he was only gone just, for like two seconds. It felt seconds. like they were trying to do too many like it was trying to be it was trying to be like Gotham Central, the great the great comic book series Gotham Central, but it was also trying to be like mini Batman. Mm-hmm. Like you got Bruce Wayne who's like yeah. kind of trying to be Batman, but he's a kid. And then you've got the bizarre villains, which almost felt like they were out of Batman 66 or the Schumacher Batman movie sometimes right. and how over the top they were. It's like, do you want to be a gritty police procedural? Do you want to be a coming of age story? Do you want to be a bizarre farce with these weird villains? And it felt like it was they would try to dr- jam it all into one episode at times. And and so it, it really felt like they, it was felt all over the place at times. But there was a lot of good stuff in there. It's just, you've kind of got to squint sometimes and overlook a lot of its <laughs> yeah. oh, you got to overlook a lot it's of its true. failings to, it's very to see. rough let's put it that way it's it's very rough but i think it will be i think it'll be fondly remembered for what it was which was this really exactly. interesting experiment that gave us a lot of great performances mm-hmm. and some really and some iconic versions of these characters and some interesting new wrinkles yep like i wouldn't be surprised to see like the fish mooney character if she hasn't already show up in the comics at some mm-hmm. point you know, they, they've given us, they've, they've added things to the mythology. The idea of, it wouldn't surprise me if the next time they do a Batman reboot, that they go with the idea that Harvey Bullock and Jim Gordon are kind of peers. Because mm-hmm. that's an interesting sort of buddy cop, older Take. grizzled veteran sure. cop, younger, you know, like sort of training day aspect to it that right. I could see them leaning into, you know. Um, so, yeah. But, but yeah. Um, so, I'm not sure how, I really have a lot to say so about. So, thanks, Gotham. Yeah. So, thanks, Gotham. Yeah. So, I'm not sure I really have a lot to say about. Do you have a lot to say about the CW shows this week? I really, really, I really I enjoyed like... Ernie Hudson on Arrow. Yeah, me too. They, 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 gave, him, they gave him a fair amount to do. I mean, mm-hmm. he didn't get I to play the a lot of shades. I like the storyline too. I thought that it was a nice storyline for Diggle. Um, yeah, okay. The shades weren't... It's only one episode. I think it was more he, a Diggle story than was great Ernie Hudson's story. He was great in the scenes where he got to <laughs> exactly. be sort of warm and fatherly. He was great in the scene where he had to be tough, too. I think he strikes yeah, a good balance. But I just both. feel like we've seen so many tough sure. military types on these shows that I just sort of... Well, <laughs> sort of, it's I nice sort of to see both sides of it. it I mean, I called it at the, uh, as soon as he walked in the well, door, sure. maybe, but... There was they were playing it pretty obviously. Yeah. They weren't trying to... No, they weren't. They weren't trying to hide I thought that. it was nice. I think it was nice to get some more background on Diggle because we don't really pay attention to him sometimes in some of the stories, and it's just... I don't know. I like it. I'd like to get to know my favorite characters even more, so... That was a nice episode. Yeah, it's been a while since he's had, I guess the last the last arc, the last sort of really strong period was his of character. Brother. Well, no, well, well, there, there was that, In but high. then later there was the thing where he was physically because oh, of the explosion right. on the island, right? As, like he yeah. had the tremors, and yet he had to be Green Arrow, right? And then Oliver wanted to roll back, and he was resentful about it, but that was like a year ago, mm-hmm. and so it feels like you know. He gets he gets like a, a a couple a few strong episodes once a year where they give him a lot of I mean he's always great but it feels like they've got so many characters to write for in the show and Oliver is clearly the star yeah that you know once a year you get a get to play a little arc here and there and the rest of the time you just sort of it just feels <laughs> being like muscly in the background you it's know? true <laughs> there's a quote um, being muscly in the background that's hilarious um, there's it's just nicer because it feels like sometimes those storylines put the people in a vacuum like they've got their immediate sphere of friends and that's all you ever see. And sometimes he mentions Lila and sometimes he mentions his kid and that's it. It's nice to know that, you know, he he was a kid once and the writers thought about what Diggle the kid was like and what sort of life he had and his parentage and um, 
it it I don't know it it's nice when you get shades to a character painted by their external forces and maybe histories rather than immediate um and obvious confrontations with situations that we get to see well, do you know the, what I mean yeah. like there's history there and and, and then they did the nice thing that see. I always like where the stuff in the future scenes ties in ties into mm-hmm. the themes of the present scene so here we got more screen time with Connor Hawk yeah who like Diggle was to Ernie Hudson's character is Diggle's stepson. Right. Um, and we discovered well, that... Well, adopted son. I think he called... Because he's Bronze Tiger's child. That's, adopted right, by right. Adopts his, John unless, Well, maybe Diggle marries Bronze Tiger. We, I mean, we don't know. True. We don't know what the future that's holds. That's true. <laughs> but you know, you're right. Adopted son. Foster father or, or you know, adopted father, whatever you want to call him. Um, so we find out that Diggle Jr., John Diggle Jr., kind uh-huh. of... JJ. Kind of... Went bad, I guess, under I guess. the under like the pressure of he having rebelled, such a f- yeah. such a like famous heroic father, um, and so the obviously the relationship between John and his father figure and yeah. Ernie Hudson is mirrored in the relationship between Connor Hawk and his father shame. figure here. It's such a shame. It actually breaks my heart a little bit when I'm thinking about it because I'm like, oh no. Well, I mean, it's not like JJ is like a character that we've gotten to know or whatever. No, it's just sad that that's his ultimate fate. That John Diggle, being a good man, yeah, but that's why Connor Hawk is there. I mean, sometimes you do, sometimes you do all you can, and the people just go down a bad, bad road. But that's why they've got the Connor Hawk character there to show that he did, that he was able to take the son of this villain, this assassin, Mm -hmm. and turn him into this hero, even when he necessarily couldn't couldn't save his own son, at least he has this positive legacy in Connor. I feel like that's that's why he's there as a character. Yeah. Now I don't know why but, they well, I don't know why they did that, why they didn't just make Connor Hawk be the alias of JJ in the future. Like why they had to be two different characters. Right. You know, I don't know why they did that, but I think that, I feel like that's kind of what they're showing. That it's kind of it's 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 a historic again, it's like poetry, it rhymes, right? Ugh. Like it's a historical irony. I hate that quote so much. It's a historical irony that John <laughs> see if I can put this make this clean in my head like John resented his own stepfather for so long but his stepfather was kind of the man who turned him into the the guy who turned him into the man that he eventually ended up being like it was that sort of tough love thing and keeping the truth from him that allowed him to preserve this heroic ideal in his head that that he wanted to live up to yes um and it's and so it's ironic that for all that John I'm sure tried to be a good father to his own son he couldn't save him and it was it was his adopted son Mm -hmm. that he ended up turning into sort of the mirror image of himself. You know, like hmm. John grew up idolizing. Okay, I think I've got it because I'm, I'm assembling this this structure in my head as, as, I'm, as I'm saying it out loud. John grew up idolizing, idolizing his biological father and resenting his stepfather mm-hmm. and had a poor relationship with him. And yet his, his own son, his own biological son was the one that ended up going astray and it was his adopted son mm-hmm. that he ended up actually doing right by. So it kind of, history kind of repeated itself, you know, like he... he he ended up raising an adopted son in the same way that he was raised as as a stepson to be. Well, I don't I don't appreciate that premise, because doing right by implies that John did something wrong with. Well, we JJ. don't know. Maybe he did. Well, that's right? true. I but mean, Oliver Oliver's like, made a lot of mistakes feeling, as a father. But this is why I'm feeling sad about it because we don't. If if John continues to be the good person that he is, he we already see him as a doting and faithful and loving and dedicated and devoted father. I know it's just so I just it's don't so far see in the future. Can... It's it's twenty years in the future. There's so much. There's, there's so much we don't know that it's impossible to lay the blame at 
on 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 anybody on and person. say say what for like if they're living in like all this I'm po- saying is it's sad I'm not blame, yeah. seeking to blame they're living in this post apocalyptic war zone where sure. the death strokes are like the jokers and Batman and who knows like, like we who haven't knows? Met, we haven't met JJ yet maybe he was a little bit rebellious because his uh, adopted brother was getting all the accolades for being exactly the perfect child as it were. Um, Whereas he was just trying to be loved for who he was or his own methods. Um, And then who knows, like maybe JJ, this is me, the writer brain going, maybe JJ is sort of just running all of this as undercover. Well, you know what I mean? Like as as a way to get in on the bad. I could see a lot of ways that that they could do it and have it not reflect too poorly on John. Like what if, like, like why Mia turned on her mother is because she kept the truth about how they were vigilantes. Her parents were vigilantes from her, right? What if JJ grew up as like this sweet, bookish, gentle kid? And so John and Lila didn't want to tell him about their violent secret lives yeah. to try to keep him pure, Argus, right? Yeah. But Connor, their mm-hmm. adopted son, maybe had this this violent streak. streak that he got from his biological father, and they're like, "Man, we've got to like we've got to teach this kid Connor yeah. to like to harness, harness his his combat yeah, and skills." So they bi- use different approaches. They use different parents. approaches, but then when when JJ became like a moody teenager or something and learned that his parents and and this adopted brother who's not even his father's real son, he got the treatment. He got the martial arts training. He got invited into the world of the vigilantes because John knew that that's what Connor needed and didn't think that's what JJ needed because of his temperament. Then he became resentful you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like yeah. you could you could write it in a lot of different ways. Where it's, I like your writer's brain. It's John, not really John's <laughs> fault. Like maybe they should have told their son the truth or whatever. Sure. But in that way, that kind of everybody wow. comes out blameless. Okay, so this is us smarties. This is us breaking <laughs> the behind the scenes. I honestly for don't. Arrow think, I honestly don't the think they're going to give it that much development because they've got like they've got like fifteen episodes well, total know, left before the series is over. Right I'm not there, sure how much. We're going to get into the parenting but strategies this, of John Diggle, you know? This is the, the breakaway um, uh, soft pilot for the Diggle series spinoff. Well, if they do that Arrow the Next Generation series that they've been hinting that they then might want to do go. with these kids this in the future, then we're going to presumably get a lot more about their formative years. Okay, in... put us in, Coach. We're ready. So, I don't know. You got your ideas to... right here. <laughs> you heard it here first, Smarties. You heard it here first. And then this Doom Patrol <laughs> episode was really excellent, too. Yeah. The, was, the, I mean, the, the stuff I that sticks with you, obviously, is is all the stuff with Larry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The the, I mean, I almost don't want to spoil it, but we we shouldn't. Yeah, we, shouldn't we find that there's there's more going on to like these. Visions, not even want to call dreams. them dreams. Like they just, are dreams, and it, he he literally. Uh, I, I'm only using that terminology because Larry himself used that terminology. He said, "Put me back in that dream." It's clearly something different, though. It's clearly like. Even before we learn that there's more to it in this episode, we think it's like the negative spirit somehow, like putting, tapping, putting, into tapping something into it. Yeah, I mean, it's the matrix, something. basically. Yeah. For all intents and purposes, that's what it is. You know what like it actually he, reminded me of? And I, I don't know if you remember this from the recent Doom Patrol run that we read because you didn't have much context for the characters yet. And so I'm not sure how much of that stuff really stuck with you. But do you remember that there was a thing where they went to the planet? of the negative spirits basically and Larry was like rebonded with the the negative spirit but um, as a reward for I'm trying to remember for being a good man or for being such a good custodian I to the negative this. spirit, or whatever they they changed the nature of their relationship so that every time the negative spirit would leave him, mm-hmm. Larry wouldn't just like lie there in a in a like, dormant in little some feud. weird purgatory yeah. where like neither awake nor asleep, unable to move. Instead, he would get to experience an entire lifetime of mm-hmm. of happiness, like from childhood from, to old age, yep. an entire like an entire normal happy life. 
mm-hmm. and then the negative sphere would come back into him and he'd like snap back into whatever. But every time it's like this beautiful waking dream for him every time mm-hmm. the negative spirit leaves him before it comes back. So it actually kind of reminded me of that, that yeah. he, he would get to the point where he's actually kind of looking forward to separating from the negative spirit because he knows he's going to get this reward almost. Mm-hmm. Um, That's yeah, his character awesome. arc is really progressing nicely. And so clearly they're at the point now where he's they're, they're setting him up to be willing to move forward, mm-hmm. you know, on a personal level and on a, if you want to call it a professional level, like he's going to, the reason why he's a Well, it has to be crummy, personal before he can even think about professional yeah. advancement well, of any kind. Each of these characters have their own reasons why they're crummy superheroes. And Larry's in particular is like, well, I guess for a, for a lot of them, it's largely the same reason, which is that they're stuck in the past. They're wallowing right. in their own self-pity, right? Yes. But their self-pity is, comes from different sources. sources. Mm-hmm. Like Cliff had, the, we talked about this before, but you know, Cliff had the high life and he hates what he is now. Larry hates what he is now, but kind of hated what he was before too, or at least mm-hmm. was secretly ashamed of it you know so he's the issues he's dealing with now are issues that he's been living with even before his accident you know yes mm-hmm. and that's the crux they're of it, deeper isn't it? seated they, you know because they're exactly, part of who he is they're part of something he's been living with his whole life but this is the beautiful point that the show is trying to make this is exactly who they were before their hideous accidents made them physically different physically hideous like these people were damaged before their accidents and that's what they're carrying that baggage is very much what they're unraveling now years and years and years later it's a very mar it's more of a marvel like and when i say it's more of a marvel sort of thing than a dc thing i'm talking about like classically when the dc heroes would be paragons and the marvel heroes you know, as you see in the Marvel movies and so on, are usually flawed, with the exception of one or two exceptions, like Steve Rogers, or like flawed people who have, who have like some sort of accident happens to them, usually science-based, and they have to like overcome their own character flaws now that they have superpowers. You know, Tony Stark has to learn not to be a selfish weapons-dealing jerk. Thor has to learn how not to be like a selfish young brat of a prince, all these, right. all these things, you know? And so it's very similar here where even though they had these horrible accidents happen to them, they kind of needed that push in a weird way to actually become good people you know like they're even though the timeline here is ridiculously long where they've been living in these states for the better part of a century in some of their cases right um so it's it's almost a comically long amount of time to be stuck in one mental state right um they're finally getting to the point now where they're the things that they've learned and the, the their current states are pushing them to sort of elevate themselves and be better people. And so Cliff is learning to be a better father than he ever was. Larry is learning to right. learning to be accept who he is more than he ever did. Right. Rita is learning to be more empathetic and emotionally open. Like you see her even in, like she she definitely had the least to do of the four or five main characters. And I guess Jane probably had the least to do, but between like Cliff and Vic and Larry and Rita, Rita had probably had the least to do in this episode, but it was even a good episode for her because we're seeing that she's not, she didn't just have the scene where she's like, you know, you know, you can call me by my real name now, which was Gertrude something or other. Yep. But she, she even has the thing where she goes with Cliff yes. without complaining about it to help him. And this entirely personal thing that doesn't have to do with finding the chief. Right. It doesn't have to do with making her better in some way or or right. her accomplishing anything. She's just there keeping her friend company for emotional support. Right. And that's something she well, definitely wouldn't have done at the beginning of the series. It's true. I mean, she is trying to get things back in her comfort zone. 
So don't say that she's completely without well, complaint. But it's very, it's your, you're right. It's, it's a, a slow new process. Thing for her. She's, yeah, she's exactly. always probably going to be a little self absorbed. She's always going to be a little bit of a princess, you know, like she doesn't want to get her dress dirty or whatever. Because, you know, a lot of that I stuff. I love that she's a blob, but she's concerned with her hair such that she has that weird moisture. I mean, some, that. some of that stuff is never really going to leave you. But especially when you've spent the better part of a century just yes. sitting there. Doing, being that just doing nothing but literally trying to hold on to those aspects of who you used to be yeah. it's pretty deeply ingrained but you see them changing bit by bit which is the, so what the did proper you think? way to do a character arc instead of and something like they would do on say gotham where all of a sudden a character is like completely has completely different circumstances and is acting completely differently because something happened once in one episode you know? so here's the question for you now that you've said that because what did you think about cliff's decision to just leave the watch there that's what i thought he would do I thought so too, like in the in the scene too. But do you think he'll come back and talk to her and tell her like, look, this is maybe, very tough, but we have to have maybe a eventually when he feels like she's had a bit of time to grieve for her adopted father. Yeah. But I think I think that he the, the idea is that he's he's achieved the sort of emotional intelligence to recognize that it's not all about him. He's not the star. He's not the race car star of every scene that he's in. Like right. this is about her and what she's going through. And as much as I might want to reconnect with her. That's not what she needs right now. What right. she needs right now is to hold on to the idea that her father was her hero and to have this one aspect of their bond back in her life right. so that she can f- grieve. And then maybe maybe one day, maybe even years from now, she'll be ready to accept this new face into her life. Right. But she's not there yet. you know. And that right. takes a certain amount of maturity and emotional perspective that he'd never, he's never really had before. And at first I thought it was just fear, you know, but now I'm thinking, because hear me out, the arc was really nice because... It sort of leaves it open for both, you know. Um, he originally went hunting for the gator because he wanted his daughter back, but he also wanted to one-up the idiot that got swallowed by the gator in the first place. He wanted to show that he could best the gator, that he was better, that he loved her better, that he well, but was more on top. There's even though. more of an arc to it than that. Like, at first he thought that this guy that raised her, because remember that, like, dream that he had yeah. a couple of episodes ago where he imagined yeah. what, what, this guy, what this guy's attitude about being yeah. a father was like, he's like, oh, that ungrateful brat, I never should have taken her in. Like, that's right. that's the image he's been living with in his head of how this guy raised his daughter. So it feels right. like, I got to go, now that he's gone, now that this idiot's out of the way, yeah. I can go come back and be my true father because that guy was probably terrible to her. And she, you know what I mean? Right. But, but then, and so he's like, oh, I can I can be a better father than him because he was probably terrible. Yeah. He was coming at it from a place of, man, like, man, this is an easy win for me, right? Even though I'm in this robot body. Right. But then when he gets there and he hears her talk about what a wonderful father she wa- uh, he was to her. Yeah. Now he still wants to get the... Th- well, get he the- was already insecure when he saw her profiles. Well, sure. But it, but then it's yeah. the, he still wants to get the watch and one-up the guy. Yeah. But now he it's coming from a place it. of, like you said, it's coming from a place of insecurity, yep. not from a place of superiority. Exactly. You know, yeah. So it's so there's, no, it's there's exactly. multiple, there's, there multiple emotional beats in this in this story just for this one character arc yeah, that was happening so, to one character out of like four that had character arcs in this episode. It's hard to emote through a robot face, and so it's it that's what leaves it open to interpretation whether Cliff left the watch because he was still too afraid to talk to I his daughter. I think to me it's very clear that it was that being he done was out of being mature, respect and maturity. And maturity yeah. yeah, it's it's very clear to me. It wasn't that obvious to me. But when he I just, thought it worked on both levels. When he levels. just screamed and froze in the in the yeah. in the swamp there, it was because he he just finally that come to it. the painful realization that he was being an immature idiot jerk about it, yeah. and that now he can still do this nice thing for her, but the proper thing to do is to do it anonymously so that she can. Well, still he wasn't have her. no, because he walked back into the bar. Well, all he had covered to he whatever. had to put it down. 
He, he couldn't like throw it in from the street or something. He was looking for her. He was going to have a talk with her. There was that moment. The ultimate decision came when she went away and and when she came back. Yeah, he, I think he was. Going I think it was simmering since he had that meltdown in the swamp. Yes, though I think yeah. that that was when he sort of that was when he he um he kind of knew deep down what he had to do. But it wasn't until he actually walked in the bar and saw her one more time that he kind of realized himself like what he had known since the swamp kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. I, I agree. It's a great show. Um, what else we nope. got on the day? Well, I mean, we didn't really have much to say. I don't think we really had that much to say about Flash or Legends, aside from the fact that they're they were fun episodes. They were fun, and I enjoy the I enjoy <laughs> continue to enjoy. Snowpack was a little um, lame for a family <laughs> team, but I, I get it. I get the, it. The Flash has got a real problem with people getting stabbed in the back by things. So annoying. <laughs> Like right. I, I feel like it's it's dramatic the first couple of times it happens, but now it's gotten to the point where like, how how many characters have been stabbed in the back by? It's even worse because like, they show I Cicada just, being stabbed in the back in the recap. That's now true every all day. the time. Yeah, yeah. So it's fresh in our minds. But yeah, okay. So we'll we'll do more thorough recaps of all the other shows uh, as we as usual next week. So thanks again for listening. If you want to reach out to us, we have an email address, mailbag at smartspodcast.com. Our Twitter handle is at smartspodcast. On Facebook, it's facebook.com slash smartspodcast. And our website is www.smartspodcast.com. How about a funny sound for us? I don't have one. How about... Yeehaw! Oh. The Doom Patrol donkey. <laughs> <laughs>